Welcome to The Experience of You, a podcast on how to own your personal brand and have the mindset to get your goals and live your dreams. People who lead with an authentic and positive personal brand create the ultimate experience for others. And when they do, they get what they want, personally and professionally. It's not about likes and followers. Don't let others dictate your brand. Take control of it and own it. Throughout this podcast, brilliant people will help you learn how. I'm Dave Thompson, and here's this week's guest. Welcome to Experience of You. Today, I'm delighted to have Timothy Day on. Timothy is a freelance composer, sound designer, and creative director based in Philadelphia. His 20-year career, impressive career, has led him from jazz music to hip-hop, from kids' TV to marketing communications. His work has won him a Grammy, an Emmy, an Addy, and an American Film Institute Award, among others. His latest work as a sound designer, The Field Trip, will be appearing at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival Short Films Program. On January 28th of next year, Tim, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here, David. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, this podcast is about the experience of you, the impact that people with strong personal brands have on our lives and the impressions that we create intentionally or not. So the first time we met was was fantastic. It was a Philly Ad Club student program, and you were a panelist on a program about personal branding. And you had me at one line, and you said, personal brand should be your default position in life. I loved it. I responded immediately to it, and I want you to share what you were sharing about that at that time. Yeah, it's something you and I both, we deal with people a lot, so you try to pay attention to people. You try to pay attention to every little nuance of a person, right? And I find that when I walk into a room and I meet people for the first time, you can glean like so much from what I call their default position is. Like, how are they standing? How are they sitting? What's the first thing they say? It's like the guitar player who walks into the music store. Like most guitar players have like that thing they always play. It's like their default lick to figure out if this is a guitar, an instrument for them. All instrumentalists do it. Horn players will run up and down their favorite scale. Drummers will do their favorite fill, whatever it happens to be. That's like their default thing. And I think people demonstrate their personalities, attitudes, all that stuff that we can amalgamate into their into a personal brand in their default position. It's especially true when you're talking to like students and young people who are like still figuring out who they are, how they represent themselves, like what who me is. And they're still figuring out that default position, which is why I think I brought it up at that ad club meeting, because I think at its best, our personal brand, our identity should be as effortless as that default position. It should be as effortless as how do I find myself standing in line at the Acme? Do you know what I mean? What is my default comfortable pose? You know, when, when I'm sitting at a table across from someone having a conversation, as I'm sitting there, this is how I'm, my, I am most comfortable. And I think a goal for myself, and I encourage others to think about this as they're, you know, doing their stuff, whatever that stuff happens to be, is to that thing that you are, how can that be your most natural state? That thing that you're trying to become, how can that be your most natural state? Like a, like a surgeon who's about to go into surgery. How can you be at, the, at your best? At, how can you achieve a high level of ease 
in that situation, how can that be your default position? Even though it might be high stress, it might be high stakes, whatever it happens to be, how can we approach that with the ease of simply just standing and being? It's aspirational. There's no, it's a thing to reach for and possibly never attain. It's like perfection in a, in a bebop solo. You're never going to get there. You're going to die before you play those perfect notes. It's the same kind of thing. It's something to, to keep always on the radars. How can I make these small tweaks to, to be at ease when I'm being myself most effectively? Yeah. And you said it, it, you want it to be effortless, but it's a journey, right? To figure totally. out what that is from the student to the surgeon. Right. You've you shared some great stories about your different career outlets, including and one that I love that um, you study as a jazz musician in Philadelphia, jazz guitarist. You've been in the creative industry for so many years. Do you find and this goes to the point about effortless, who do you find to be the most is it, effortless with their default position. Who do you find people to be most genuine? Is there a industry? Is there a type of person that you have responded to or? That's a, that's a great question. I, th I think I've been really lucky in that I can instantly think of a couple of people that I've been fortunate to be around with some regularity that, that I've had that impression of. The first, this, this is a story you've heard me tell of, of why I moved to Philly in the first place to study jazz guitar. So I moved to Philly in the mid-90s to study with Jimmy Bruno, who was, at the time, some would argue up until today, was who I consider the greatest living bebop guitar player. So I grew up in the Pocono Mountains. I moved down to Philly thinking, all right, I know how to play jazz guitar. I'm going to go study jazz guitar in college. Great. I did well in high school, got a scholarship, came down here with my little guitar, playing in a bunch of big bands in the Poconos. I studied with some great people, the Poconos too, don't get me wrong. I had a great experience learning how to play jazz. I'm making air quotes, everybody. Learning how to play jazz in the Pocono <laughs> Mountains. <laughs> so I get down here to Philly. I signed up to, to, for Jimmy Bruno to be my major teacher, right? Meaning he was the person I was going to study with once a week for four years. Awesome. I got on that short list. I'm in. This is going to be great. And I get to my first major lesson, and we're taking out the guitars. At that time, the University of the Arts was above the Merriam Theater, it was basically just like a, a rat's nest, like a warren of little rooms with pianos in them and chalkboards with uh, manuscript lines, music manuscript lines already on the chalkboards. So we get in there. He's sitting at this baby grand piano, smoking cigarettes. They're like burning the edge of the piano. It's like right out of a great movie. It's just, <laughs> he, he was perfectly sweet. It was great to meet him. He was, I got, got a good vibe from him right away. So we start playing rhythm changes. It's like the default position jazz tune to feel how everybody's doing. We might have played uh, Satin Doll or something else too, but... So we're playing rhythm changes, and I'm, you know, I'm playing some. He's like, "You take the lead, all right?" So I'm playing my little solo. I'm getting getting through my rhythm changes. I'm playing my two five ones, getting my licks on. So that went on for a little while, and then I started taking the chords, and Jimmy started to play, and Jimmy started to really play, and Jimmy got into this default position with bebop in front of me that I had never experienced before. Between the setting, between the instrument that he was playing, which was a beautiful seven-string Benedetto, I had never even seen an instrument like that before. Just being in that close proximity to an instrument like that before makes an impression on somebody. But to watch Jimmy disappear into the instrument, to disappear into himself, to disappear into capital M music, to be that close to someone who's doing that for the first time in my life, I found it profoundly moving. Which is why at the end, he gets done playing. He plays for 10 minutes. He goes somewhere. He comes back from that magical place 
that is only that he got to the level that's only achievable through some really serious blood, sweat, and tears and human sacrifices, meaning sacrifices on his part to other parts of his life. He stops. I put my guitar back in the case. I say, Jimmy, I think I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I said, I made a terrible mistake. I should have gone to law school. I said, something like that. I said, I made a terrible mistake. He, he slapped me on the back. He said, oh, you know, a lot of expletives. He was a big fan of cuss words. So he says, no, I'm sorry, Tim. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that to you. This is going to be great. We're going to make this work for you. It's great. So I tell that, I tell that story because that was the first time I was in, in the presence of someone who was operating in such a high level and exhibited such ease at that high level that it was just yeah. something else to behold entirely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, the second person that I was in really close contact with was a, was an employer of mine when I was a freelance. Uh, I was making records as a freelancer. This is right around the turn of the millennium. He was a, a former partner at Accenture. Okay. And he had joined Accenture after a really wonderful ride of career choices from teaching transcendental meditation to working for Canada Post to uh, working on all manner of just really intense corporate projects. But he was so he just had that he had that look that when things were at their most stressful, because he was still consulting with Accenture at the time, when things were at the most intense, he was at he was like his A game was right there. And always after the phone hung up, he was right back into that place of like personal bliss, right? Like he always somehow found that moment to breathe. There was something about how his mind was organized that he could be completely back in the moment. And he would do this like while playing the piano. He was a fine piano player. He'd be, he would have, have his great improvisational things. The phone would ring. He'd be you know, talking to God knows who on the line. He would take a breath hang up the phone, and then right back at it. It was just a wonderful thing to behold. So it's, it's people like that. There was a book that we were, I think we were required to read it in college, called Effortless Mastery. And it was about that quest to get to that place where it becomes it becomes easy and magical. And I think peace is something I, something I think all, like I said before, you know, it should be on your radar. How can you, how can you make the difficult thing, the, um, the thing you should be doing, therefore... Um, the thing you're most effortlessly mastering. Yeah. So that's, that is two things come to mind as soon as you say that. One is it's people across industries, corporate, mm -hmm. jazz musician, mm -hmm. and the idea of being effortless and what it takes either to work toward that goal or for many of them, maybe like a Jimmy Bruno, how it comes naturally. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what do you think about the vibration and the kind of the natural attraction that you respond to in certain people. Yeah, I respond to that's a that's an interesting thing to think about for a moment, isn't it? I love to laugh, so I do enjoy people with a good sense of humor who are quick to laugh. I do enjoy people who don't take themselves super seriously. I, I guess that's the most wonderful I'll tell another quick story, right? I guess that's the, most, that's the best place to be. Uh, real quick story. Phil Woods, a legendary alto saxophone player. I played in a student big band that he had directed in high school. And I don't think I was playing a solo or something, but somebody else in the band, it was like a, it was a big band. If somebody else was playing, and Phil says, stop, 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 stop. He said, what are you doing? And this is Phil Woods, who had married Charlie Parker's uh, widow and had played his horn and went through with the, he, Phil had paid his dues. And Phil said, he said, it's only music, man. 
<laughs> he said, it's only music. This is a man who's dedicated his life to the temple of music. But he said, it's only music. Why are you taking it so seriously? You know, what, what, just play something. Just make some noise. Just make some mistakes. Play some bad notes. It's only music. Somebody who doesn't, who knows exactly what they're doing, doesn't take it super seriously. I respond mm. well to that kind of thing. And people who like to have fun. I'm keenly, I've always been keenly aware of how lucky I am to be here with a capital H here and the limited amount of time we have. And if I'm around other people who are aware of that and who are trying to hustle just as hard as I am, trying to do the most they can with what time we have left, then, yeah, we're going to do some cool stuff. We're not going to waste any time. We're going to get to the heart of the matter. We're going to cut to the quick. That that turns me on. Yeah. That The fuse. If we're all looking at that fuse, okay, <laughs> it's game time. Let's do this thing. I love that. Then I'm in it. I'm in it. Yeah. So many jobs, many experiences. <clears throat> what with that short intro of you does not do justice is your consumption of life and willingness to do anything to continue to learn and experience. So you've shared jobs as unloading trucks in Detroit. You've done uh, children's theater. You've gone from blue collar to white collar to creativity. What have you learned about people? Along the, along that way, having experienced so many people from so many different genres and industries. It sounds, it sounds trite to say that I, I can come away from these, like, these work experiences that I've been super fortunate to have and say that people are very similar. And I've learned that. But I think that's really true. When I was doing creative direction work, working for a lot of marketing and communication clients, working for folks in the C-suite, it's, I think a lot. I think a lot of folks have this image of CEOs and CFOs and you know, executive vice presidents of large Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies as being like this certain type of person. And yeah, these are high achieving people, right? These are badasses. So you don't get to that level without being a badass at what you're doing. But the, the, these we're all just people in those settings. These are people with interests outside of what they're doing. These are people who are trying to do the best job that they can, however they're defining that best. You know, just as people who are enabled to do their best at whatever job they are, those are just people, too. That's not really answering the question closely, but I think I've enjoyed seeing the similarities between folks. And I've been lucky to be able to work a number of different roles. And I think I consider myself a very open person. I do learning and I like absorbing. And I hope that I've been able to absorb enough from all kinds of different places to bring something new to the next place that I go to from the last place I've been to. I like to think that my experience as like a teenager cleaning hotel rooms, is I still keep that with me today. I like things to be neat because I was trained how to properly clean. <laughs> I like to keep things neat. I was a lifeguard for a while. You're trained to, to potentially rescue someone. So that that desire to jump into a situation when others might not jump into a situation, I think I take that with me. I was teaching guitar in Detroit for a while. The experience of sitting with someone who's just holding an instrument, who's just holding their first, I'll zoom out, who's holding their first creative tool ever in their hands that they just got as a, a holiday present or what have you, and trying to usher them into this grand awakening moment of, okay, this is you. This is a way you can figure out what kind of human being you are because you're about to express yourself. That's awesome. That's intense. And I love taking that kind of awe and wonder and Oh, this is just a great moment thing. I like taking that to everything that I do. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a roundabout way to answer that question. But I have enjoyed learning that we're all we're all in the same boat. We're all just trying to do the same stuff. We're all trying to survive, and we're trying to hustle to the best of our abilities. And that's something that you and I both have experienced is that there's so much there's so many young people today and and we're referring specifically toward our roles as teachers and instructors mm. and mentors that are so worried about how they present themselves and are not just experiencing and they don't think that they can approach a CEO. They don't think that they can ask somebody to be a mentor. And they're coming at life from insecurity and lack of confidence rather than understanding what you just said, that we're all, we all have similarities. We all have outside interests. It's hard to get people to, to shift that perspective. And since you also uh, teach Tell me about your experiences in relating to the young adults and how you're helping them maybe open a window to a better way of living. That, that's, a, that's a great point. The whole – I try to remind myself, and sometimes I mess up. I try to remind myself to say to groups of young people when I'm talking to them, be it a lecture or a class or whatever, I try to remind folks that you only happen once. It's like, the, it's like the old show tune. There will, be an, there will never be another. There's nothing more true than that statement. And I think by virtue of that, we all have something to contribute to every situation. That, that's why when people started talking about radical collaboration, I was like, yes, I'm all about that. I, I love having a young person who's never done something before. Just give, Just try it. Just acknowledge the fact that by virtue of you being you and me never having worked with you before, and us both knowing that neither of us will ever exist again outside of this chance opportunity that we're here doing this thing together at the same time. There's, that means that you have a ton of value to bring to the situation. It's like that. You've heard me, you've heard me use this quote before. The, the French, uh, there's a French prankster, right? My French is bad. His name is uh, Remy Gaillard. He does these YouTube videos. He was very active years ago. He's like an early YouTube star kind of person. But he had this great uh, quote, and I'll just say it in English because my French pronunciation isn't accurate enough. It is by doing whatever that you become whoever. It is by doing whatever that you become whoever. So uh, I'm going to use that quote the first day I'm teaching a film scoring class at uh, Drexel University here in Philly in January. And these are people who have never scored a film before. These are musicians. And I'm going to try to remember the first day. By virtue of you being here, you are now scoring films. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? You're not studying film scoring as a, you're not going to Berkeley, you're not going to University of Southern California, you're not studying at the film school to film score films or whatever. You're here, you're doing this now, therefore you are this thing. Yes. I, th- I think between that notion and the notion that by virtue of you being completely unique, the royal you uh, being completely unique, you, you do have something to contribute to this situation. Yeah. How do you build people? How do you build that confidence then? And how do you open the eyes, pull the veil over when you are teaching at the, the youth? I think encouraging fearlessness, encouraging big mistakes, encouraging those wrong notes, I think is super important. Creating a space for that failure to happen without judgment, mm-hmm. welcoming those imperfections. When I'm, it's especially true when I'm teaching a class where I have to actually play an instrument or draw something. I'm not good at either of those things. And I like showing students that. This is what I do for a living. But if I were to part the curtain and show you behind Oz, Tim is a crummy keyboard player. I could play a little bit of the ukulele, but I am not a ukulele player. But here I am doing this thing. I am figuring it out one chord at a time, one note at a time. Therefore, I am doing that thing. I think, and, and I think that transcends the education space into all other spaces. If we give people the ability to fail well, 
and to take something away from those failures. Mm-hmm. It's so important. It's so powerful. And it creates a space where greater things can happen. It creates yeah. a space where some real successes can happen by virtue of somebody feeling safe to, to make those mistakes. Right. And the interesting thing is uh, at that age, they don't think they can fail. They don't think they're allowed to. Yeah. 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 That, that's, I, I don't, I kind of know why I, I can theorize where that comes from. It might, it's, you know, maybe beyond the scope of our conversation today, but it is a shame. So I do my best to create those spaces in all the groups that I'm privileged to be a part of. Mm-hmm. It's especially true when working with young people who may have never been told just to play some wrong notes before. Mistakes are a mistakes are part of life. Failures part of life. And if you're not learning from it, you're not advancing. And I'm sure you share as well as I do that. <clears throat> CEOs and leaders in any industry have been in the position that the students have been. They have failed. Failure has shaped them, and they are eminently relatable and want to be spoken to and connected with so they can impart some of this wonderful advice and the and life experience that they've had that have gotten them, freed them up to create. Totally. Yeah, totally. One thing I, I say sometimes over dinner conversation, usually after a couple of drinks to piss off my uh, socialist friends, there's this notion that CEOs are like these evil people, right? There's this like this us versus them kind of mentality. But that's not this. There are a few exceptions, of course, but very few CEOs wake up every morning and say, how can I hurt blue collar Americans today? How can I not support my employees today? How can I make my company more divisive and less inclusive? That is a rare situation. Right. So openness, there's things that you respond to. What is the experience that, of you that you try to share with others? I am, I am quick. I've always been quick to raise my hand to do stuff. So I, I like to think that openness, that willingness mm-hmm. to fail and I don't know where that necessarily comes from, but I am, I will do anything once. I will try this thing once. And, you know, in, on the best days, I have enough self-awareness to know, okay, this isn't gonna, <laughs> this isn't gonna go well, but let's see what happens. Yeah, I try to be self-aware. You try to meter the level of failure versus the level of expectation for success. And some days it's rocking and rolling. Other days, like, nope, <laughs> that was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. So I think the experience of me is the ability to try. Mm-hmm. There's a, the phrase I have on my website, Timothy Day will die trying. I will continue to try. <laughs> I will continue to try to contribute. I will contribute to try to add. I, tribu- I, will, I, I always say, that be, being a, of the music-oriented classes that I'm uh, teaching, we're trying to make a, a, a contribution to our culture. I will try to contribute all that I can. And uh, yeah, it's there. John Mellencamp said once, he's, yeah, I, I, I expect fully that at some point in my career, I will be back playing in front of three people in a bar. <laughs> so there's a part of me that expects fully to be to be pushed back at some point. And that's things come and go. Things ebb and flow. We roll with the punches. It's like when we moved to Detroit so my wife could go to graduate school. I had a bunch of gold records in my belt, a record I'd worked on and won an Emmy or a Grammy Award rather the year before. I moved to Detroit. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to get some badass recording studio job. I couldn't get a job doing a damn thing. Hmm. I, it was a pushback. I got pushed back, and there I was, whatever. 
to make whatever I forget what our apartment rent was at the time, but whatever it was to make that little bit of scratch to, to try to keep some lights on. I think that expectation of failure, that willingness to try, that willingness that okay, there's we have stuff to lose, but we don't have that much to lose. Right. I hope that answers the question. Yes, the answer was in there somewhere. Yeah, it was in there yeah. somewhere. <laughs> if not, it's a great conversation anyway. Talk about you, you've shared with with my class so much, like you said, the Galliard quote. <laughs> But you had another one. If you can't name it, you can't have it. Oh, yeah, I love that. That's uh, Kerry James Marshall, the uh, the American painter. I don't know if that's original to him. He said it at the end of a lecture he gave that I saw online. I think it was University of Chicago or, University of Chicago or something. But I, I took it to mean, he, he said, if you can't name it, you can't have it. He was speaking to, I think, uh, MFA graduate art students. And... In that, in the art world, if you don't say to yourself every day, if you don't guide your career to the goal of becoming like a blue chip gallery fine artist, you're not going to get there. If you don't say when you're a high school athlete, I'm going to play in the NFL, you're not going to get there. It's not going to happen by accident. You have to name it. It's like that thing that you write on your mirror and lipstick every morning. That's your affirmation, right? This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is what I'm going to be. And this is how I'm doing. This is how I'm making decisions to get me to that place. It was very powerful when he said it because he just set out to become one of the greatest living American painters. That's what he, he said. Yep, this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And he organized his decisions. He let that guide his hand. He let that uh, change his course of action throughout his career. And that's he did it. Mm -hmm. But he did it because he named it. Yeah, you know, he didn't let it. He didn't let it come to him. And if they're not naming it, they can't create the stepping stones and know what they have to do to get there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's especially true with young people, right, who are in this soup of ideas, this soup of goals. And, and it's a dynamic process. That goal can change. That, that The end zone can become closer and farther throughout our lives. If we're lucky, it changes many times. If we're lucky, the definition of success changes all the time. But if you set out to be the greatest pop artist the world has ever known, if you want to sell more records than Lady Gaga, if you want to crush what Macklemore was able to do with pop music, then, all right, write that on your mirror every day. And at the end of the day, before you go to bed, did you have a good day? Did you achieve anything towards that goal? My, my wife is an artist, and she defines for herself, like, every day, every week. It's Who wrote the book? David Allen, with Getting Things Done. Mm -hmm. He has these definitions of success, like your entire life is like that 50,000-foot view of success, and then it gets closer and closer to just today. Mm -hmm. Are you doing the right stuff right now to get you to that 50,000 foot goal? You right. know, are you doing the, and that's a conscious process and you can't, you, you have to, it's focused. <laughs> it's a conscious, it takes a lot of psychic energy to do it, but it's a, it's a process of analysis and realization and defining success and defining goals towards that success. That's why there's a whole industry of books written about how to, <laughs> how to organize your day to get there from David Allen to Stephen Covey to all that stuff. Like how do you, it's how, not do, how do you keep the drive? It's not paralysis of by overanalyzing what you need to do. It's by looking at your day, mm -hmm. being present. Absolutely. So your, if you can't name it, you can't have it, discussion to our my temple class inspired a assignment I give every year. I didn't and, know this. And I, I have this in the beginning of the semester after we start talking a bit about personal branding and what it is and have them understand how – it impacts their future positively or negatively. I make them write their retirement announcement. Ooh, damn. Project where you project. Tell us what you achieved Ooh. when you retired. 
I originally started it uh, the first time I did that. I said, uh, write your obituary, but that got, that was too heavy for him. <laughs> so I changed it to your retirement announcement. Oh, that's wonderful, David. Wow. And they, and they were at first, the word, the best word I can use is flummoxed by it because yeah. they said, I don't really know. And I said, nothing's written in stone. I'm asking you today yeah. to consider what your life is going to look at. Look, excuse me, and share. The journey that you had, the steps that you took, where you lived, where you, how you loved, what you achieved, wonderful, influenced, and I get back some very amazing papers. Some of them people still can't deal, and they so I stayed with one. I I was at this company for thirty years. (laughs) So, what was some of the feedback from students after that assignment? What do you think they? What did they come away from that with? They come away from the realization that I've never thought of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so focused on my immediate goals of this is the college I've got to get into. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. They compartmentalize it as jobs. And what are they going to do for their next step? I've got all this massive debt. What am I going to do? Take yourself out of this. You're going to achieve. As you say it, I'm sure, to your students is, you guys are wonderful people. You are going to achieve. Get out of your mind now and start to activate where you're going to end up. And as you said, if you can't name it, you won't have it. So the feedback is is runs across the board. But those who get it go, wow. I never thought about it, but now I've got some ideas about my future that I had not thought about. It's such a great idea. Yeah, it's, it just makes me think. It's, it's a real. It's, it's a really good thought. It's it's like when you hire somebody, you should ask them to write their exit interview letter or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you here? What do you want to be able to say as you're leaving us? That kind of vibe. That's cool. That's really cool, David. Love that. And Brian Tierney was the publisher of Tierney Communications and the Inquirer, did a speech at Temple one time, and he advised the students there, and he said, when you are getting your next job, he goes, think about the job after that. What skills are you going to get? What what learnings? uh, What? How's this going to build that stepping stone? And he used the he used a kind of a weird analogy, but I thought it was fun. He says, think of yourself as Tarzan. So you've swung into the next vine, and that's your job. He goes, think about the next vine as it's as you're swinging toward it. Don't miss it and swing back. So always think forward. Always think toward what could you be accumulating, skill set, life experience, relationship creating that will help you down the line. I love that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Advice for people building their brand today. So talk a little bit about that. And I know failures, we've talked a little bit about failure as a part of it, but you've spoken on this very eloquently and I love your perspective. I think, I think to go back to that default position idea, right? How can you present yourself vis-a-vis your personal brand in such a way that you are both at ease and the people around you are at ease? How can you inspire others to be their best around you and the group, whatever group that you're working with. I think now more than ever, especially in light of 2020, if you have the ability to bring people together, if you can make that coalition building part of your uh, daily quest, if you can make that conversation with others part of your daily interaction, 
if that ability to interact, if that ability to connect, that's the word I should have used when I first started answering this question, if, if you can make that ability to connect more forward in your personal brand identity, I think that's a wonderful thing to communicate. And if you don't have that knack, if you don't have that uh, inkling to be the connector, acknowledge that. And how do you build bridges in spite of that fact? How do you connect? So I've noticed it in having to teach online using video conferencing and Zoom, whereas some people connect really well in person. Tangent here. But some people connect really well in person, and others would rather sit in the back of a classroom or a meeting room or whatever and just sit with them, be them with themselves. You, you change the paradigm. You change the communication paradigm, and all of a sudden the folks that might have been sitting in the back of the classroom are now blowing up the Zoom chat. Mm-hmm. because now they're communicating using a paradigm that they're very comfortable with and they feel at ease with and they feel strong with and they feel experienced with. So how can you work? How can you spin yourself to be the one who can communicate with the most ease, with the most, not necessarily eloquence, but just with the most sense of who you are and how to bring other people together around you? I think that's super important for brands these days, especially especially right now where I think we need to connect with one another more than ever. Yeah. Because it's hard for me to say, hey, David, let's go get a cup of coffee. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, we're here at the end of 2020. So those little, what used to be just easy offhand, hey, we should, let's do whatever with whoever, you know, it's now. And I think going forward, we're going to appreciate the value of those moments even more. And I think if you can build that into any kind of personal brand building exercise you're undergoing, I think that's super valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, between connectivity, flexibility, and openness. Those three things have been like super, just really important things that I've been conscious of, and I think they could serve us all. I think that's uh, very well said and, and really summarizes what I understand about you from the first time that I saw you talk about default position. Tell us a little bit about your latest work. I'm intrigued by the concept of sound design and, and the film that, you're, that you've uh, worked on. Yeah, so I got into doing work in visual media in the early 2000s by virtue of the fact that a lot of major label music money had left Philadelphia at that time. The neo-soul movement that was keeping so many folks in the Philly scene employed had fizzled out. There are still some stars who are doing their thing today in that genre, but by and large, there wasn't going to be a platinum neo-soul record. And I think at that point, some of the major label money started to, to leave the city. My wife and I didn't want to leave Philly. We love Philadelphia, so we didn't want to move to L.A. or New York or to Atlanta, where a lot of music money went at that time. So I just tried to pivot the best that I could into working in other media, trying to use my music and sound and engineering and production and just people skills to keep food on the table. So I got into doing uh, television and film work, and I've continued to do that ever since as one of the one of the prongs of Tim's career fork is doing that kind of thing. So this most recent thing is a short film. It is about, it's called The Field Trip. It is about a place where, how can I best describe it? It's basically a place where groups of middle school and younger aged young people are taken to run a town for the day. Oh, wow. So they are pre-assigned roles, right? Like they have CFOs and CEOs of each of the companies. And the companies might include, like in the film, there's a bank. There's an insurance company, there's a, a pet rescue shelter, there's a construction company, and I'm sure in the actual physical space there's many more businesses, quote-unquote, that these uh, young people are fulfilling roles at. 
And it starts off, it basically starts at 9 o'clock when they get in, they're introduced into the space, and it goes up until 3, or I think it's 2.09 p.m. is the last uh, title card at the end when they get back on the school bus to get taken to, back to wherever they came from. But it's their journey through coming to understand what's what it takes to be a quote-unquote adult, I think. And some of the, some of the magical moments in the film are when there's... Uh, Someone is frustrated by paperwork at the bank, like all the paperwork you need to deposit a check. And he, this one uh, young boy throws up his hands and says, why does life have to be so complicated? <laughs> it's just so wonderful to, just to see this, the transcendent frustration of some things. Yeah. So that's a good one. And that was a pre, I, I don't really know how it works, but it was pre-selected to appear at the Sundance in their shorts program. Wonderful. So that's going to be January 28th. And that was directed by three folks. That was directed by Mike Addy, Megan O'Hara, and Rodrigo Ojeda Beck. Two of them are in California, and Mike Addy is here in uh, Philadelphia at the University of the Arts. And I had worked with Mike on his last two film projects, so he brought me in on this one to kick up the sound design on this short film. And it was a, a hell of a – it was a great project. It's going to be on January 28th. Sunday. Cool. Yeah. I'll be sure to put that in, in in the link. Tim, I just want to say thank you, as always. And I, I want to encourage, because I, I know Tim well enough, is that those who listen, who want to connect with him through LinkedIn, who are interested in the music industry, he's got so much experience and such a generosity and willingness to, to share his perspective, to uh, connect with him through LinkedIn, through his own. Uh, website, and, and pick the brain of somebody who's experienced life and has just a real unique experience about connecting and building relationships. So with that, this is this end of one conversation, and we will continue this in another uh, interview, I'm sure, in the future, Tim. I really enjoy talking and learning. Always great talking to you, David. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Experience of You. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others who are currently trying to land a job, transition careers, or are looking to improve their professional brand. To catch all the latest workshops, resources, and insights from the Career Coach Pros community, you can follow us on Instagram at Career Coach Pros and on Twitter at Career Coach Pros. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.